leading a startup team, whether you're delivering a sugar rush, stocking coffee, or getting a regular delivery of snacks, Office Depot has solutions that fit every startup culture, from getting those first business cards in stationery to ordering fleece pullovers with your new logo. To learn how Office Depot and the California Technology Council have partnered to bring you savings on all of these startup essentials and more, go to californiatechnology.org forward slash member benefits. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Report. Orphan drugs, therapeutics that target small patient populations, have become an enticing area for big pharma, as companies are attracted to the premium prices, lower development cost, and faster path to market. A new Evaluate Pharma report on the orphan drug market forecasts a compounded annual sales growth rate of more than 11% through 2022, with orphan drugs accounting for more than 20% of total worldwide prescription sales by then. We spoke to John Gardner, U.S. editor for EP Vantage, about the growth of orphan drugs, what's driving the sector, and whether the way the industry is taking advantage of the Orphan Drug Act will cause policymakers to push back. John, thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks Thanks for having me. We're going to talk about orphan drugs, what's driving their growth, and how large pharmaceutical companies have moved into these drugs for small indications in a big way. Let's begin with a definition, though. What constitutes an orphan drug? An orphan drug is is a drug for a rare disease that might uh, not otherwise attract a lot of attention from pharmaceutical companies because of the small population. So, uh, the definition in the U.S. is for uh, patients uh, for is, is a disease that affects fewer than 200,000 patients. Um, the, in in the Europe in Europe and Japan, there are um, different definitions, but uh, it's it's about those type of numbers. In the in the European Union, it's uh, fewer than five in 10,000 patients, and in Japan, it's fewer than 50,000 patients. Well, since the passage of the Orphan Drug Act in 1983, there have been incentives provided to drug makers to develop drugs for these small indications. What are the incentives this provides drug makers, and how has it changed the landscape for orphan drugs? Chiefly, um, it's a tax credit for uh, the research and development that um, uh, costs that that companies put into into developing the drug so in other words it uh, what, what it does it makes it, it makes it uh, less expensive for a pharmaceutical company to uh, develop an orphan drug uh, on top of that because these are smaller populations uh, uh, the study uh, populations uh, the 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 um, uh, uh, Groups uh, in, enrolled in the studies um, are, by definition, smaller, so it uh, is therefore less expensive for the uh, for clinical development uh, uh, to begin with. 
On top of that, there are incentives uh, for, from an approval standpoint. Um, typically, the FDA is more, much more likely to accept uh, surrogate endpoints uh, that, that rely on some sort of logic curve instead of hard clinical outcomes, uh, um, as is in the case of many uh, uh, primary care drugs, uh, in order to get approval. So from that standpoint, a very attractive area for companies to get, in, to get into to be costless and and it's uh, less complex to get an actual regulatory approval. Well, we had the first downtick in the number of orphan designations in 2016. Does that speak to any meaningful change, or does that reflect the, the rapid growth we've seen in recent years, which has been uh, at possibly an unsustainable pace? I, I th it's hard to say what 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 that actually means um, because it, 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 broadly speaking, there were fewer um, approvals uh, of uh, drugs in in 2016. So it may be just a, a statistical blip. Um, obviously, it's something we want we will want to watch closely. But I think that that what happened in in the last four or five years is is that uh, companies are so eager to fill pipelines that we saw a tremendous amount of of clinical development, um, and I think that you know, as, as companies were trying to fill pipelines, as trying, trying to respond to patent expiration, that perhaps now we've just seen a sort of, uh, if you will, a plateauing um, of, of activity, uh, which could lead into, into a, a numerical downtick, but it may not be anything um, uh, that, it, that is uh, uh, that is continued in 2017 and beyond. Obviously, we will want to keep keep a close eye on it because it would be another measure uh, uh, um, R and D productivity of the industry. And I would be more concerned if, if in 2017, 2018, we saw a continued downturn of, of uh, in terms of numbers. And overall, what what kind of levels are we seeing in terms of orphan designations being granted? Um, I, th I think. Um, uh, it's around uh, 300 or so. Um, so a robust number, nonetheless. It, it's a very large number, and uh, you know, obviously that that won't that won't yield 300 uh, um, uh, actual orphan drug approvals. Um, and in many cases, that will, there there will be uh, multiple designations for a single drug, as as companies are trying to in early stages um, uh, develop and identify uh, the. The patient populations for which they're most effective, but still, it is um, uh, um, it's a large number. Orphan drugs have been embraced by the industry, as as you noted, in part because of the faster path to development, smaller clinical trials, and lower costs to develop. Uh, can you put some numbers to that? How, how do orphan drugs compare in terms of development cost and, and development time? Um, off the top of my head, um, I, I think that you would probably have uh, about half the, the half, half the cost at least, uh, um, and probably half the, the development time, um, which means that they could they, they're, you know, from, from a pure financial standpoint become be a much more um, uh, profitable project. You know, obviously, each each drug is is is. Um, uh, you know, is, is 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 a sample of one, um, and many, you know, many cases they might take longer, or cost more. But I think that you could obviously expect um, half or less than half in terms of uh, of time and money spent. The other thing that's made these drugs particularly attractive to pharmaceutical companies is, is pricing. 
How do they generally compare in pricing between orphan drugs and non-orphan drugs? Orphan drugs, um, in many cases, depending on the size of the population, you can expect um, uh, um, you know, uh, per patient um, reimbursement to be in the hundreds of thousands range. Um, a drug like Alexian Soliris, um uh, is over the you know is is cost more than four hundred thousand dollars a year, uh, and that's for a very very recent population that could be on the order of two thousand patients in the U.S. Um, as the as the populations get bigger, um, uh, the, the what you can expect in terms of reimbursement has uh, has shrunk um, or will shrink. Um, Particularly for, let's say, a cancer drug that has uh, a specific orphan indication, but also uh, also has a broader uh, 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 patient population, um, like a blood, a certain blood cancer drugs are, are, are examples of this. Um, you would see more more along the lines of the tens of thousands, uh, tens or maybe a hundred thousand dollars in terms of, uh, of uh, reimbursement. You know, one of the most startling aspects of, of the growth of orphan drugs is the role they're expected to play in the overall revenue growth of the pharmaceutical industry. Can you put that into some perspective? Well, I think the um, uh, um, the it now is on the order of uh, 20% of uh, the uh, worldwide prescription sales or will, will be uh, by 2022. So it's it, there's no doubt that um, that companies look to this um, as a um, uh, as, as a potential growth driver. And some companies have gone, um, you know, have become pure play or at least uh, semi-pure play, if you will, uh, uh, orphan drug companies like Shire um, has gone very heavily into into orphan drugs in recent years, and and you know they've seen you know they, they continue to see their uh, uh, significant revenue growth uh, that's that outpaces uh, um, many of the uh, maybe the larger peers in the uh, in the pharmaceutical industry. I take it in, in the next five years, they're expected to contribute about half of overall revenue growth for the industry. That's that's uh, that's correct. One of the things we, we've seen as part of the move towards targeted therapies and precision medicine is a, a narrowing of patient populations in terms of indications, primarily for cancer drugs. One of the things that, that I find striking about the list of top-selling orphan drugs is how it is dominated by cancer therapies. What does the group of, of top-selling orphan drugs look like? Well, uh, um, so in, in, at least for, for 2016, um, you know, the, the top-selling um, orphan drug was Revlimid, which is um, uh, a, a, a hematology, uh, oncology drug that is a, a blood cancer drug. Um, and looking to the future, um, uh, um, the, um, the top-selling uh, orphan drug, uh, defined as orphan drug, would be, would be um, I believe um, uh, um, uh, uh, cancer drugs. Also, um, the important thing there is, to consider there is that much of their revenue will not be in uh, um, the orphan indication, but it's a significant way for them to perhaps get to market first um, in a single uh, indication that then allows them to expand outward uh, into other uh, um, uh, into other indications. Um, it, on the other hand, there are there are, are drugs you would consider, uh, for example, uh, 
uh, pure play um, uh, orphan drugs, for example, as we mentioned, Celeris, uh, which is only approved in, in a single or two very small indications. Um, and uh, that is that is going you know that is is worth considering when you when you view the orphan uh, sector. Well, in in that regard, are we seeing the orphan designation being awarded to the types of drugs that was intended to incentivize the development of, or have the barriers orphan drug definition been stretched into something else? It has. It, I think it, it, it's fair to say that it's been stretched into something else, and and you could have a, a have a, a, a strong debate about whether or not the FDA should, uh, and the European Medicines Agency uh, should perhaps tighten uh, their their views on what orphan drugs are. But on the other hand, you don't want to disincentivize uh, companies from uh, um, uh, developing a you know a, a broad drug for uh, a, you know a broadly applicable drug for a specific orphan indication if in fact it you know this patient this underserved patient population can um, see some benefit well, one thing drug makers would love to do is to win approval for a drug with an orphan designation and then expand that indication and grow the potential market how, how common is it that companies are able to do this i i think it's i mean it's it's not a very it doesn't happen very frequently but it does happen um and i think that you know but what what it you'll see a lot of times uh, um in many cases it'll it'll be a small biotech uh, that has ambitions of becoming a larger company and want to achieve that first approval and establish a revenue stream that they can u then use to to finance continued development of that drug into broader and broader uh uh, disease uh, uh, categories. So when we think about the dominant players in orphan drugs, are, are they the companies you traditionally think of as rare disease companies or are they the large pharmaceutical companies? Well, I think it, I think it depends on, 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 on how you view the orphan sphere. Um, you know, uh, um, we, we define it, of course, um, as uh, uh, drugs that have, have achieved an orphan a designation. So, um, a company like Celgene, for example, um, you know, which which is largely an oncology company, um, has you know is is the big um, is, a, is the big seller or has has the biggest sales in the orphan sphere. Um, on the other hand, um, you also see uh, in, there are companies like, for example, uh, Sanofi, which uh, went into this in, in a big way when it uh, bought out Genzyme a few years ago, has become a significant player. But there are also companies like, as I mentioned, uh, for example, Shire, um, which has, which has, I think, in many ways, uh, swung away from uh, uh, what you would call the primary care drugs and into their rare disease uh, field, uh, field, and has have managed to. Um, uh, established themselves as a big player in this um, in orphan disease as almost a, um, a, a, a pure play company. There, there's been talk about allowing uh, the repatriation of profits from overseas for pharmaceutical companies and the expectation that this could really drive M&A activity in the industry. Would you expect the orphan drug companies to be likely targets? I, I think that you, it's it's fair to say yes. A company like Alexion, uh, for example, has been talked about for years as a um, as a takeout candidate. Um, it's a, really an issue of 
uh, even in you know even in our sort of post biotech boom era um, valuation and whether or not the you know, companies can justify the price they may end up paying for um, for for a company like Alexion. Uh, Shire is another example. It's been a target in the, in the past. Um, it could be a target in the future. Obviously, it's a um, uh, UK. Um, uh, or, uh, Irish, Irish domicile company, so that's not the same situation. But I think you would see them obviously um, rising in prominence uh, if that if repatriation does indeed happen. We talked about the the stretching of the the use of the Orphan Drug Act. Is there concerns about any kind of pushback, either from payers or from policymakers? Is there risk that they'll come under greater scrutiny and lead to to payers and lawmakers, you know, putting new restrictions or pricing pressures on these drugs? Well, we've, we've already started to see that a bit. Um, if, you, um, uh, uh, if you have followed the affairs of Sarepta and their new drug, um, Exondus 51, um, which, is a, which is a rare disease drug for Duchenne muscular dystrophy, um, they had significant pushback from payers, including uh, some, some Insurers who wouldn't pay for it at all because it still constitutes an experimental drug and were were in, uh, were not persuaded by the um, clinical data that uh, that uh, uh, Sarepta has has offered so far. Um, a second drug that's been approved recently is Spinraza, um, a Biogen's drug for spinal muscular atrophy. Uh, some of the payers have come out and said we will only reimburse this uh, um, exactly uh, for for as as it is labeled by the FDA, we won't, uh, which is a rather, which defines a rather specific group of spinal muscular atrophy um, patients. So therefore, um, people are very concerned about the prices uh, that are being charged by by this uh, by these companies. But I think, in some regards, I think there is probably reluctance uh, from from uh, the FDA to um, to take action because of the uh, what could be the the, you know, the political implications of that, and I don't think that this uh, the current Congress is interested in any way in um, in tightening um, drug approvals or, or, or proving to be a shall we say a barrier to drug approvals. John Gardner, U.S. editor for EP Vantage. John, thanks as always. Uh, th uh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening. The Bio Report is a production of the Levine Media Group. To automatically download this podcast each week, subscribe to our RSS feed or through iTunes or other podcast manager. To join our mailing list, go to levinemediagroup.com. We'd love to hear from you. If you want to drop us a line or are interested in sponsoring this podcast, send email to danny at levinemediagroup.com. Special thanks to Jonah Levine, who composed our theme music, and the Jonah Levine Collective, which performs it.